Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, U.S. payrolls fell 701,000 in March. Just extraordinary. The unemployment rate uh, jumped to 4.4%, the highest level since 2017. We had those jobless claims uh, yesterday, 6.65 million. So the jobs numbers, the uh, uh, employment situation in this country deteriorating just extraordinarily rapidly to get a sense of kind of how bad it could get. We welcome Tom Gimbel, CEO of global staffing company LaSalle Network. So Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start right there. How bad do you think this is going to get on the jobless front? Well, I think it's going to get bad, but the numbers that the government reports aren't going to be that applicable because what you're going to see If you see the jobless claims come in at such a high number, then the unemployment claims come in at under a million. Hard to believe I'm saying that's an optimistic thing. But then with the PPP program, you're going to see that uh, the unemployment claims go down because these people that filed will be back on their employer's payroll for the companies that get that money. And then we'll see a higher unemployment number when traditional non-restaurant, non-hospitality companies have to let people go and those people file. So I think the May and June numbers are going to be a lot different than than what we're seeing, and it's really not an accurate read on what's going on. Tom, I think that everyone agrees on that. Nobody kind of put too much faith into the actual number. However, they did try to dig in to get some signs of how the economy was doing before the real shutdown began in the United States. I was really looking forward to speaking with you in particular because you've been particularly optimistic about a lot of some of the dark clouds for a long time. And I'm wondering, based on the fact that we saw companies freeze hiring before even the U.S. economy shut down in earnest and the true pain began. Are you revising some of that optimism? Well, I mean, this is going to go, yes, my my whole perspective has changed immensely based on this, and I think we're going to be in a in a bad place economically for a, probably longer than a lot of economists are saying is what from what I'm seeing and 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 what I believe to have happened. Now, what I think was going on with some companies prior to the shutdown was there's always a little bit of paranoia of are we in the last innings of the ball game, and that was coming on. And there was also the fear that while it hadn't hit America before the shutdown, we had seen what was going on in China, and there was some precursor to that. So there were some bigger companies that really saw a little bit of the writing on the wall and started to prepare for it. But I was extremely bullish. Most of the companies I talked to, their first quarter numbers were really, really good in going into March. And so now, but with this, we're going to see an extended period. What's really going to happen that I'm quite certain of is a cash crunch coming in Q3 and maybe even into Q4. So companies that are still spending right now to an extent, they're not going to be paying these bills for three, four, five, six months. And that's going to hurt some small and medium-sized companies. So, Tom, just thinking a little bit forward, where do you think unemployment rate, the real unemployment rate in this country, will will go over the next uh, couple of quarters? I think there's no doubt that it'll be double digits. The question is, can it hold at 15%, 12 to 15%, or is it going to get to 20? I think the estimates of 30% are very high and a little bit the sky is falling. Uh, I don't see that happening. From what we've seen in in China, that uh, the rebounding of that, and while spending may not come back as fast as we'd like, uh, the consumer uh, programs that we've set up, the government has with PPP and the, the rebate checks, I think that it'll come back. And I think it maxes out probably around 13 to 15%. Tom, you said that you thought that the, uh, the pain would be felt for a lot longer than many economists even think. How long will it take? 
Now, my guess is, is that we're looking, I mean, for a real, I mean, think about this. In 2019, there were people saying we were still in a recovery from 2008. So this is, is while it's, it's much faster and everything's happening at once, so there's a belief that it'll come back faster, my guess is we're looking at, at late 2021, early 2022, where it really feels quote-unquote quote normal from, from a standpoint of hotels and travel and restaurants and, and, and then and, and traditional corporations hiring. It's going to be a little bit of a, of a long slog here. So, Tom, give us a sense of kind of we've seen, obviously, from some of the restaurant industries, some of the travel industries. Where do you think the next industries that are going to be at risk for uh, significant job losses? Well, my, my take on that is, is you really don't know. However, what I think is going to start happening is, and this will be an interesting thing to see through the big payroll companies, the ADPs and the paychecks, because as companies lay people off, they're not processing payroll. Uh, for the same numbers. And the way payroll companies get paid on their traditional lines of business is how many checks they process in a period. So as those numbers dip, you'll see that it's starting to affect the technology and software companies. And then you have software user licenses, like a, a Salesforce or a LinkedIn. And these companies, while huge and can withstand a, a setback in the economy, they get paid on a per-user license. And there's contracts that companies sign, but as you start to see that employee uh, companies lay off employees, anything that's billed out to their vendors on a per-user basis, like software, like payroll, you're going to see those get hit as well. So I think it's going to come into areas that a lot of people aren't even talking about yet. Tom Gimble, thank you so much for being with us, and I hope you do come back and give us a sense of the progress uh, being made and, and sort of update us on your views. Tom Gimble is Chief Executive Officer of the global staffing company LaSalle Network. Paul, a mystery listener made a suggestion to me yes. recently um, that we have a dad joke of the day and that during this period of time, everybody needs a little bit of levity. And he made a suggestion for one. Okay. So we're going to start this. And it is, why can't a nose be 12 inches long? Why? Because then it would be a foot. <laughs> okay, so if you That's, think you okay. could do better, <laughs> okay. if you, <laughs> let's start this though. And if anyone wants to write in suggestions, you can. You can email me, labramowitz at bloomberg.net. Um, and let's do this. Let's have a let's dad joke of the day throughout this whole period because everybody kind of needs a little bit of a break because it's only going to get worse when we look at the numbers and there's a lot of gloom and doom. I'm Lisa Abramowitz along with Paul Sweeney and this is Bloomberg Markets. Paul, we keep hearing reports about how the hospitals are completely overwhelmed, nurses and doctors working around the clock, having to buy all this additional equipment, having to pay for hundreds of thousands of new patients coming through their doors for extensive hospital stays on ventilators, all very high cost. And there's a question, who's going to pay for it? Jonathan, uh, Dr. Jonathan Gruber is a professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He was one of the key architects of Obamacare and Romneycare, and he joins us now uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Dr. Gruber, thank you so much for being with us. How big of a cost do you expect this to be for the healthcare system? Do we have any ballpark figures at all? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So there's sort of two ways to think about it. One way is how big is the cost of COVID-19? And here I've seen estimates ranging from $100 billion to $500 billion. Uh, $100 billion would be fairly manageably absorbed. $500 billion would not. Um, but that's not really the right 
number. The right number is what is the net effect, which accounts the fact they're losing a lot of other business. So there's a lot of of places that are that a lot of services aren't being delivered, in particular elective surgery. So figuring out the effect in the healthcare sector is actually a bit complicated because on the there's being scissored. On the one hand, they're seeing increased demand for this COVID-19 services that's going to cost a lot of money. On the other hand, they are being um, they're losing all their sort of elective surgery business. So, Professor, okay, so $100 billion to $500 billion, who at the end of the day pays for that? Is that part of some federal fiscal stimulus that goes to the healthcare system directly? Uh, no, a lot of it's going to be private insurers. Um, so basically, once again, the, the scissors is exactly the opposite for private insurers. So to the extent that um, the elective surgery that doesn't happen never happens, then that hurts providers but helps private insurers. To the extent that there's more COVID-19 cases, most of those people will have private insurance, and so that hurts private insurers but helps providers because they're not getting paid for that. Um, so I think really uh, a lot of the costs are going to come from, gov- from the government through its Medicare and Medicaid program, uh, but really pri- private insurers will be the primary payer. And then finally, we have the uninsured, uh, rapidly increasing number with the huge job loss numbers we've seen. And there, the question is who's going to pay for them, and we haven't resolved that yet. Well, and I'm wondering, do we have a sense of how organized the effort is to try to coordinate payments and not necessarily create a, a complete mess of bills and, and, and bankruptcies, personal bankruptcies, as people try to grapple with the new reality after a visit to the hospital here? You know, I, 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 I think there's a huge issue and there's a huge coordination issue because, remember, a lot of our private health insurance is built around restricted networks. And the last thing you want to do is restrict where someone can go. You want them to go to the hospital that has the space for them. Then you've got the fact that many people have high cost-sharing deductibles and things where they haven't spent much health care yet this year, so they're going to hit with their full deductibles. And then you've got the fact that many Amer- 28 million Americans and growing are uninsured. So I, I think we have a big problem. I think the federal government isn't taking it very seriously as far as I can tell. Um, when they've been pushed on it, uh, they've just said, well, we'll just divert the latest is uh, President Trump announced he's going to divert some of the $100 billion fund for hospitals into helping care for the uninsured, which is the last thing we need because the hospitals need that money. So I, I think we, need, we, we urgently need much more action on dealing with these uncovered health care costs. So does that bring back some type of Affordable Care Act? Do you believe you think there's political will there for that? Well, I think you know the Affordable Care Act was actually designed for situations like this. Remember, the whole idea is that our, you know, our reliance on employer-sponsored insurance is a little fragile to situations like this. And fortunately, uh, the Affordable Care Act has set up exchanges that people will be able to go to if they lose their jobs. And so I, I, I think we're well prepared for that um, in terms of having these exchanges that should make people appreciate the fact the Affordable Care Act is there. Uh, that said, um, many people uh, still can't afford insurance on the exchanges, so we're going to have to think about what we're going to do for them. Um, and many people uh, also, if they have um, private insurance, um, they might not want to go on exchange insurance. They might want to keep their employer insurance. They can do so by buying COBRA, but that's quite expensive. Dr. Gruber, if, if you would, could we walk through a scenario in which the exchanges aren't reopened and Obamacare is not expanded and there is no sort of redux in, in, with respect to the widening of the, of the healthcare safety net? What happens, especially to the hospitals, if you have an increase in uninsured of newly laid off people without their, uh, their corporate insurance coming to emergency rooms for primary care? What does that do to the hospitals? 
Okay, so so let, let's uh, let's be clear about this. So when we talk about what the ACA did, there's two pieces. There's the Medicaid expansions, which means that everyone losing their job in thirty in thirty five states, everyone losing their job who's falling to be very poor will have free public coverage. In the other states, they're totally out of luck, unfortunately. So one thing we can do is we can try to get those recalcitrant states to actually serve the interests of their residents rather than nasty politics and actually expand their Medicaid programs. In terms of the exchanges, there's no issue of reopening the exchanges. The exchanges actually have a provision that if you lose your job, you can sign up. So this is the, 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 there's a bit of a, this kind of idea of a special enrollment period is a bit of a red herring. Um, for people who lose their job, that's called a qualifying event. They can always sign up for the exchanges. So the exchanges are there for people. Um, that said, um, you know, states that haven't expanded Medicaid and people who don't go on the exchanges will be uninsured, and we're going to have to deal with the fact that hospitals are going to have to, are going to be unable to eat those bills. And so part of, part of the hospital bailout fund is designed to help with that, but it's not enough money, and we're going to have to really have a new initiative, either expanding access to these exchanges for people or uh, you could all think about a federal uncompensated care pool of the nature of the type that other states that some states have, where we basically absorb the uncompensated care costs of hospitals for COVID nineteen patients. Right. We're going to need some kind of initiative of that type. Jonathan Gruber, thank you so much uh, for joining us and giving us that color on the healthcare system as it grapples with the coronavirus. Jonathan Gruber, professor of economics at MIT, just really interesting well, stuff, Lisa. It's a big issue. I got to say, Paul, I, I mean, I, I'm struck by all of these needs and they're all so important and they're all so expensive. And really, my question is just going forward, how all of these different needs are going to be prioritized at a time of crisis and when yes. there isn't necessarily the economic growth to back it. Yep. And uh, the states are dealing with it. The federal government's dealing with it uh, and individuals are dealing with it. We've been listening to Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York talking about the latest from New York State, which is the epicenter with the number of cases crossing the 100,000 level. He talked Mm -hmm. about the dire shortage of equipment and the need for it and the idea that the state will take uh, ventilators and other gear from uh, businesses that do not need it right now. They will either return it or compensate those businesses for those items later. Also, he was talking about the apex coming very quickly and how all the hospitals here are now essentially COVID-19 hospitals hospitals and that the Javits Center was going to be entirely a COVID-19 facility as the U.S. tries to battle the epicenter of the crisis, which is at the moment in New York saying that people are getting together, volunteering, that there are hundreds of healthcare professionals coming to the city to volunteer their efforts. And the city, uh, New York City, is uh, the predominant majority of the cases currently, Paul. Really, yeah. really dire situation that he talks about for healthcare workers in the hospitals. And uh, and laying it out is he becomes sort of the spokesman for the crisis right now in the United States. He really has been. His uh, These daily briefings have become kind of must-listen to, must-watch, uh, uh, kind of to get information and get a sense of how this is really playing out uh, uh, down on the front lines. And talking about an interesting concept, Lisa, about, you know, we need the equipment, we being New York State, need the equipment now. When we're done with it, and we will be done with it uh, probably first, uh, then we will deploy, redeploy the resources, including personnel, to other parts of the country. So interesting concept about a national response. 
Yeah, and a real focus on equipment and making equipment, telling even small businesses, if you can have cloth and put the strings on the sides, you can make a mask, you can make some uh, medical gear, do it. We will compensate you for it. It is a business opportunity. And you would think it was a business opportunity for 3M, one of the biggest manufacturers of a lot of items, including things like face masks. And yet there has been controversy over their efforts. I want to bring in Karen Eubelhardt, who covers all things industrials for us at Bloomberg Intelligence. Karen, can you just lay out what the controversy is around this company? Uh, you know, um, the uh, president is saying that, A, they didn't um, – they dragged the feet in ramping up production. Number two, they're sending um, uh, product to other countries. And three, that they're not doing enough to fight the price gouging that's going on in the, in the you know, personal use mar- market. Um, and uh, number one, they've doubled production in, um, uh, since, since January in the U.S. Um, production. They're doubling it again um, over the next several months. Um, one of the problems is a lot of this production doesn't, the masks aren't, not that many are made here. Um, a lot of them are made overseas and a lot of the con- com- countries have been holding the masks for themselves. Um, you know, Honeywell barely makes any masks in the U.S. They largely import everything. Um, G- G- uh, 3M makes about a third of their masks here, but it's not enough. So it's, uh, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, and on the price gouging, they have stepped in front of that and they've been um, you know, trying to fight that. Who knows if they did it quickly enough? It's hard to know. So, Karen, I mean, is there an opportunity, is there an ability from some of these companies, these manufacturers like 3M to significantly ramp up production and really make a difference in the near term as uh, Governor Cuomo so earnestly, you know, um, asked for? I think collectively um, it could matter. Like um, Honeywell just now um, repurposed a plant in Phoenix to make some masks in the U.S. because most of them don't come from here. But it cannot happen overnight, and there's a supply chain impact as well. There's there's shortages of certain product uh, parts that go into the production of these masks and the productions of the ventilators. I mean, I, I read an article where Philip said it's 650 parts go in components go into ventilators, which is more sophisticated than the respirators. But nonetheless, that's a lot of parts to round up and round up overnight. You know, companies typically take time to ramp up um, and everybody's scrambling to get it up as quickly as possible. But it cannot happen. overnight, And that's the issue. I would think, though, that with the, the masks, it would be a lot easier. Why can't there be a more domestic supply chain if there is an issue of importing some of the parts? Well, they do have to they do have to reprioritize a lot, but a lot of you know a lot of componentry for a lot of things like I cover HVAC. A lot of the componentry comes from someplace else. Um, we have really, I don't want to say decimated our our um, domestic supply chain, but we certainly shrunk it. And I think people started with the tariffs. We've seen companies um, change, you know, make alterations in their supply chain to have more product locally. But that is a structural change that takes time. Um, you know, um, they they. And the other thing is 3M said 90% of their masks go went to industrial. And the reason is that, you know, they have all these requirements, health requirements and, and OSHA requirements. You could not use industrial masks, which was 90% of the U.S. production, for healthcare use. Now you can. They, there was an authorization that allowed them to do that. But only 10% of what they made here went into healthcare. So, you know, 10% of $16 million is not even enough for, you know, two weeks in New York. So, um it, it will happen. It is happening. It can't happen overnight. 
And now that they will have all the supply chain prioritized towards them, and you know, um, which is another step that the government is taking, that anything in the supply chain is also going to be under the DPA, so that all the need, so that more of the needed componentry, et cetera, um, and a lot of it's like chemical, you know, like polypropylene stuff like that, can get to the manufacturers of these masks very quickly. I Karen, just want to note that Honeywell yeah. isn't getting ba- banged at all, and Honeywell doesn't even produce many here. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> just so how how is anyway. how has three M responded to some of the attacks from the administration? Well, you know, I know this management. Mike Ro- Roman is a pretty you know uh, even level-headed guy, much more low-key than the prior CEO, but he's come out as well as he can swinging. And, you know, if you hear some of his commentary, you know, it's worded very diplomatically in the releases. But, you know, on on TV today, he said the, the, the claims are completely false, um, that we're not doing enough. We're killing ourselves to get this production up. And the price gouging thing, we've been very vocal on how we're trying to fight that. But, um, but a lot of the distribution, a lot of the masks go through distribution, particularly industrial masks go to distribution, and then they can go anywhere. So they have to take control of that so that everything that co- comes from them, they know where it's going. You can't just go to a distributor at this point. And all of it's being reallocated to healthcare anyway. The distribution was largely, the distribution part was through the industrial chain, and a lot of that's being rejiggered to go to healthcare. So, I mean, he's pushing back. And, you know, there are costs and benefits of doing that, you know. So maybe right. because Honeywell's laying low. You know, they're being left alone. I don't know. (laughs) Karen Uberhart, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Karen Uberhart, she covers all things industrials for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of uh, Bloomberg. And looking at 3M right now, the stock is down about 2.2% today, down about 23% uh, year to date. So uh, interesting time for a lot of these companies as they try to scramble, Lisa, uh, and it doesn't uh, help to get pressure from public pressure. Uh, from uh, the president via Twitter. So, uh, but we'll see uh, companies kind of revamping, rejiggering, uh, trying to react as aggressively as they can. And that includes some of those industrial companies uh, like 3M and Honeywell that uh, Karen just mentioned. I'm so pleased to say we are joined by Tim O'Brien, a senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us after a hiatus. Thank you so much for being with us, Tim. You wrote a column that I thought was fascinating, looking at the fate of small businesses following the coronavirus shutdowns, a pretty dismal assessment. Why do you think so many small businesses don't have a chance of coming back after this whole thing is over? Well, you know, I, you know, the stimulus plan right now, Lisa, essentially envisions getting them across a bridge for the next two months or so. It's a meaningful amount of money. You know, it's a $2 trillion package, $350 billion of it is for small businesses. Small businesses employ the lion's share of American workers. Uh, you know, they contribute a huge portion uh, to annual GDP, nearly half. Um, but the reality is, as, as mammoth as this bill is, and as well-intentioned as this aid is, it may end up being just a gigantic Band-Aid. And I think the things that small businesses, policymakers, and Americans have to come to terms with is this is probably just phase one. And, you know, is it being engineered regardless of that in a way that actually puts small businesses on their feet for the long term? Uh, So I think that's the first issue. The second issue is how is it going to be administered? And there's already a lot of signs that the Treasury Department has not given banks uh, clear signals for the standards around 
uh, lending the money out and handling applications. The banks are complaining about it. Small businesses are already wary of it. And it it could end up being uh, a bit of a train wreck if it's not managed well. All right. So, Tim, so again, what are the... The key issues is to get capital into some of these small businesses. How much, how much you know, reserves does a typical small business have? I just don't think it's that much. It is not. Even Paul, you know, even in the best of times, running a small business is a perilous endeavor. Uh, they, you know, the failure rate is always high because small businesses are risky. But even for established small businesses that have been in in business for a while. They rarely have enough cash on hand to cover more than a few months of payroll and operating expenses. Payroll is usually the biggest piece, which is why uh, a large portion of this of this 350 billion is targeted at payroll costs. Um, so, you know, it, it's it, it's going to be extremely tricky, and uh, and I'm, we'll have to give it a little time to roll out. But Steve Mnuchin this week touted. Um, the launch of the program today to help small businesses, which is today. Um, and there's, again, already signs that it's hard to get this, you know, this, the blood flowing around this. We have to give it a little time to wait and see, but it, it's, you know, it's going to be tricky. And, and the thing about small businesses, too, <clears throat> is that they're very tied up in people's hopes and dreams. Small business owners, you know, run companies in all of our towns they give a lot of character and flavor to the life of a town, and and they tend to have very deeply personal connections to their business. And the the poignant and sort of tragic piece of all this, beyond the economic impact, is the loss of all those hopes and dreams, too. Tim, I have to wonder, you know, there is sort of the program, and we have heard about the unclarity around exactly the interest rate and how banks are exactly going to make these eligible for a guarantee by the government. There are all sorts of questions in the rollout of this. But putting that aside, there also is the question of the transformation in the economy stemming from the coronavirus's effect a move toward Amazon in particular. And I'm yeah. wondering how much that will accelerate this beyond any kind of financial program that the con- that, that Congress could pass. Uh, that's a fantastic question. You know, it, uh, President Trump is referring to himself as a wartime president. There's been a lot of talk about this whole event, the financial and public health, the epic sides of all this, that this is a like a, you know, a wartime moment. And we know historically that that society changes immensely before and after any wars. It happened before and after World War I and World War II. I think the thing you're putting your finger on right now is um, I, I don't see how inevitably digital commerce and, and distance commerce uh, don't come out of this even more triumphant than they were before the virus took off. Um, uh, Brick-and-mortar retailers were having long-standing troubles competing you know, Macy's uh, furloughed 130,000, the majority of, 100, of its 130,000 workers earlier this week uh, because they having had had trouble competing before the virus, and they may never really be competitive again. So I do think you're going to see this epic transformation in the way that business is conducted and how consumers interact with businesses. Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, coming on the program. Good to have you back. Uh, Tim O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, In his column, $350 billion won't save U.S. small businesses, suggesting, Lisa, that uh, it 
perhaps needs to be even more, uh, needs to be more direct. Uh, but even that, uh, small businesses, unfortunately, uh, are going to be in for a very tough road ahead over the next uh, several months. We already saw that with the initial claims uh, that we got yesterday. I mean, we'll only see more of it, right? But we got a sense that basically if you can't have, keep the lights on, then you fold and there isn't much uh, in, by way of resources to keep things going or diversification. And the question is just from my perspective, how quickly can things get ramped up and will they ever return? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.